This evening, though, I'd like to have you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. <coughs> Excuse me. 2 Peter chapter 3. I mentioned last week when we finished our study in the book of Ezekiel that I uh, uh, wanted to do a little bit of a supplement uh, to the last nine chapters, which deals with, of course, the, uh, the millennial messianic temple that is described so uh, detailed and vividly in, in, in those chapters, chapters 40 through 48 of uh, the book of Ezekiel. And we spent a good amount of time in those chapters. But uh, one of the issues that uh, uh, in, in studying this particular passage that I, I, I thought to be quite interesting was uh, when we first started talking about the, the city of Jerusalem in that day and talking about the, uh, the temple sitting where it's going to sit, which is going to be different than what we see when we go to Israel and see the temple mount. And of course, we spent some time talking about an, al an alternative to what is the normal temple mount and possibly it being in, in, in the city of David. We... we we took a little detour in talking about that earlier. But um, <clears throat> the one thing that we continued to state was that there was going to be this tremendous topographical changes when Jesus comes to uh, set his feet upon the Mount, the Mount of Olives and then enters into the city of Jerusalem uh, to rule and reign for a thousand years. And of course, the temple would be at the very center of everything. And as we learned last time, all of the, all of the tribes are going to be uh, north and south of the temple. And the temple is going to sit right in between everything. It's going to be in the middle of everything as it always has been and as it always should be. When the tabernacle was, uh, uh, was uh, brought to Moses, uh, the vision of the tabernacle uh, for him to make out in the wilderness... The tribes, all of them, sat around the, the, uh, the tabernacle and the presence of God would come as a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. But when it came upon the tabernacle, all the tribes were facing it. Uh, in, in this particular uh, sense where we have the, the tribes now, six tribes above, six tribes uh, below the city, or uh, yeah, the, the city of of the temple itself, uh, we call it Jerusalem. Um, that is going to be right in the middle of all of the tribes themselves. So uh, once again, just even though a little different configuration, but it's going to be right in the center because the temple is the center. And there's a, there's a, a reference to the fact that uh, in the book of Revelation, we're going to talk about this part next week. I'm telling you right now, this is a two-part supplement, so I'm just going to start it today, and then we'll, we'll get over to the time where we're going to deal with a lot of the stuff that we're going to see in the book of Revelation, tying into uh, the millennial kingdom and the, uh, uh, the bringing about of, uh, actually, the, uh, I should say, the tribulation period leading into the millennial kingdom, which is where the concern lies because of... Uh, of everything changing, but you know, most people think that that uh, the greater uh, topographical changes are going to happen 
after uh, the end of the uh, uh, thousand-year reign of Christ. And what I was saying last time was the possibility is that it really happens before the millennial reign. Uh, and the case in point is what we're going to read here in Second Peter. Now, our text is going to be verses 10 through 14, but I want to start reading in verse 8 for context's sake. And also to give us an understanding of how Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now is speaking to us concerning God's view of what is yet to come. And therefore he says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And then I also wanted to mention what he says in verse 9, because this, this should also be, you know, the heart of every believer in Jesus Christ while we're waiting for the Lord to come. And that is that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But then he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And holy conversation is holy conduct. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. I want you to take two, uh, notice of two things. When he begins in verse 10, he speaks about the day of the Lord. And in verse 12, he speaks of the day of God. We're going to talk about some of the distinctions about those two phrases. Uh, Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I want you to notice that he's speaking to the church and he's speaking to us and he's saying that we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We are looking for that now. Not after the destruction, you know, of of some thing at the end of something. (laughs) But now we're looking for it. We're looking for the new heaven, the new earth now. And wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So our very lives as believers in Jesus Christ is very key to our understanding these things. While we live for Christ, while we live and move and have our being in Christ, while we desire to do all the things that honor and bless him and and live our lives in such a way that reflects the light of the glory of Christ in our lives is part of us looking for the coming of the day of the Lord. But in our final study in the book of Ezekiel, I, I comment on that possibility, I'm going to say this one more time, that one, one of the reasons there will be such a great trouble, uh, topographical change or topographical changes in the land of Israel <coughs> pertaining to the city of Jerusalem and the mountain upon which the temple will be built in particular could very well be due to the events of this chapter here, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10-14, through 14, happening not at the beginning, or I should say, not at the end of the millennial or thousand-year reign of Christ, as many have believed, but in the end of the Great Tribulation, the end of the seven-year period, which is also called the Day of the Lord. And this is what prompts me to consider this, 
Because it is very clear that he talks about the day of the Lord and then the, 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 the things happening, the heavens being burnt up and the elements melting like, you know, with fervent heat. But he mentions the day of the Lord. This is the day, the day of the Lord. Well, we need to then understand what these days are all about. Because there are a number of days that are mentioned in Scripture. And if we have some idea about those days, then we'll have some idea as to when certain things may happen. So what I'm saying is that the climax would be the battle of Armageddon, which is before the thousand-year reign of Christ and not after the thousand-year reign of Christ. But what we do know, if we are students of the Word of God, is that there is an overwhelming judgment on its way. We know that. And one reason why it's been delayed has to do with the day in which we live. Well, we live in what is called today the age or the day of grace. That's not going to be up here behind me, but I think you can write it down if you're taking notes. The age or the day of grace. The day of grace. It is also called the dispensation of grace, or more simply, the church age. We're still living in the church age. It is an age that began with the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and was made possible by the sacrificial death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, who is also the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I want you to consider something about this day. It is an important day in which we're living because the Lord is still doing his work among his people. God is still doing his work through his people. And there are still people that need to know Jesus Christ on this earth just as we did at one time. And someone shared the gospel of Jesus with us. Someone declared the gospel of Christ to our hearts. And we had our eyes opened by the very word that was given to us, by the very move of the Lord upon our lives. So it's an important day, isn't it? The day of grace is still an important day. And we're still living in that day as we wait the coming of Jesus Christ. Consider, if you will, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where Paul says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. And again, I want to emphasize not only what Peter said, but now what Paul says to Titus about how we are to live while we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And, and think about that again. We're, we are here presently in the age of grace, in this day of grace, in this church age, as it were, looking for that blessed hope which is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking, we're waiting. And, and notice that he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Purifying us for what? For what is to come after all of this? 
Redeeming us from all iniquity for what reason? Because we're not going to live here anymore. We're going to be here for a little while longer and then we're going to go home. We're going to go be with, with the Lord forever. When he comes. And, and yet concurrent with the day of grace is another day described in scripture. It is what is called the day of man's judgment. Now, I don't mean the day of man's judgment as a day that God has selected for man to be judged. We're living today in the day of man's judgments. Man judging. Man judging according to his mind, according to his flesh, according to his will, according to his ways. Man living according to the way that he wants to live apart from God, without the knowledge of God, even though man cannot escape the fact that there is a God. And Paul makes a, a, a reference, if you will, to this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3. It's a very small reference, but it's a reference nonetheless. <laughs> he says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yeah, I judge not mine own self. He says, I don't even judge myself, but man judges me. And think about this day and time in which we are living in which the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the people who belong to the Lord, are being judged every day by the world. And not only are we being judged every day, but the Lord is being judged every day. In what way is he being judged? Well, he's being judged and, 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 and accused of not being real. <laughs> We're accused of believing in something that is old-fashioned or something that is antiquated. But that's man judging. While we're living in the day of grace, we came out of that world, folks. We came out of that world judging things. Being the judge and juries of our, of our critics being the judge and juries of our, you know, the people that uh, had animosities toward us. And we hated them just as much as they hated us. Until when? Until Jesus came into our lives. And the reason for understanding this day in those terms has to do with the very fact that the word for day in the Greek, the word for day in the Greek is the word hemera, is, is associated with the passing of judgment in various situations. It is the day that man judges while God appears to remain silent. And of course we know that that's not the case. God doesn't remain silent. But if you consider the things that Paul has said about the prince of the power of the, of, of, of the world, the prince of the power of this age, as it were, and the sons of disobedience to follow after him, it would almost appear as if God does remain silent. But within this time frame of days, within the time frame of the day of grace and the day of man's judgment, there is another day. There's another day that stands out scripturally during this present time. And it is called the day of salvation. It is called the day of salvation because God's grace is still available to all, even those who judge us. 
And let's not forget that there were some of us here that judged the church. We judged the people of God. We judged them. We ridiculed them. We mocked them. And now here we are. God's grace is still available to all. And this is why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, We then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted and in the day of salvation have I succored thee or helped thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day. Paul, of course, quoting from the Old Testament, nonetheless, he was saying, this day of grace, even though it is a day of man's judgments of God, it is the day of salvation still. And man can still come to the Lord. We know that the next day on the list of days following this is the day of Christ. It is the day of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 4 through 8 says this. He says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. That in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So that you come behind in no gift. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice. Who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day called the day of Christ. And then in the, cha- the third chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 13, Paul says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, he says, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. Everyone's work will be seen. For the day shall declare it. What day? The day of Christ. The day of Christ shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And the biblical implication here is, of course, that on the day of Christ that will also be the day of the judgment seat of Christ. Where all the things that we've done, both good and bad, will will be presented to the Lord. What is going to last is the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Whatever wood, hay, and stubble of our life comes with us, it'll all be burned in that fire. Will we all be saved? Of course, we're saved going into the judgment seat of Christ. But we'll all stand before it. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul said, As also you have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he speaks of it as a day in which he will rejoice 
in the fact that those who are going to be before the Lord, that he has had some part in bringing them to Christ, he'll rejoice on that day of Christ. And then to the Philippian church, he said in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Are we getting close to understanding what day that is? Well, let's think of Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16, the next page over, where Paul says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Now this day of Christ refers to the day when the church will be snatched away. The day that the church will be raptured and taken home. As Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4 and as Jesus of course said in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. But let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4. Where Paul says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, which means, of course, that they're dead, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain Unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, we will not precede them. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazo, harpazo, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I want to mention that uh, I was listening to a radio program or on the internet, but it was uh, uh, one that was uh, detailing some statistics about certain things that uh, people in churches don't know and should. One of the highest percentages of things, uh, something like about 65 to 70 percent of people in churches today don't know what the Great Commission is. They don't know what the Great Commission is. I, I'm not going to ask you this because I you know, want to put you on the spot. Maybe the Lord will put you on the spot one day. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But if I said, tell me where is the Great Commission found, we should be able to say quickly, oh, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. The Great Commission. Where Jesus says, go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
And so shall I be with you always, even to the end of the world. I'll be with you. But go. Go make disciples. And that's the Great Commission, and a very large percentage of people don't know that. And they go to church every week. We need to know what the Great Commission is because God has commissioned us to go into the world. And the other thing that people don't know about, whether they want to know about it or not, or whether they just are not taught it because of whatever church or denomination doesn't believe in it, is the rapture of the church. It is a very clear doctrine. Especially it is a very clear doctrine as it comes and pertains to the things uh, dealing with the end times. Paul was very clear about it here in 1 Thessalonians as Jesus was in John chapter 14. And certainly all of the allusions, when I say allusions, I'm not saying illusions, allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N-S, uh, that are given in the Old Testament pointing toward a rapture of the church using people like Enoch and Noah and, and Lot and others. And, and, there, and many others, by the way, that, that point to that uh, kind of event would all point to the times in which we're living. And we're much closer today than even Paul was, but I can tell you this, he taught this church this small, brand new church in Thessalonica about all the end time things. Read uh, through First and Second Thessalonians. It's all about the end times. Pretty much all about the end times. And that's where the church needs to be. Now we're doing that, plus we're also studying the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, because it's God's word. And it needs to be. It needs to be touched, and and, and not just touched. It needs to be studied needs to be learned until Christ comes. Well, getting back to our study, but coinciding with, with that, that most precious of days, when the church shall be ever with Christ, is another day. It coincides with the day of Christ. Because specifically when the, when the rapture of the church happens, something else will begin to happen. And it's another day. It is called the day or time of Jacob's trouble. A day or time of Jacob's trouble. So turn to Jeremiah, if you will. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Jeremiah 30, verses 7 through 9. Because here it says, Alas, for that day is great. What day is that? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. Well, who is Jacob and what trouble did he have? Well, Jacob was, of course, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And Jacob had his name changed by God in the wilderness. And he named him Israel. In effect, he's saying this is the day of Israel's trouble, Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it, he says, speaking then of the nation of Israel. For it shall come to pass in that day, 
And by the way, that phrase, in that day, is a very important phrase. We'll talk about that in a moment. It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall, be, shall no more serve themselves of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. So the time of Jacob's trouble was not only the times of the Assyrians and Babylonians coming down upon Israel and Judah as they did, but it's an even further prophecy. It's an even further prophetic picture way down the road, even beyond us, but not that much as far as time is concerned is that road beyond us. It's very near. Why do we know that? We know that because there is an Israel again. There is a nation of Israel that God has raised up for this very purpose. Because he has to finish dealing with them because of their rebelliousness and their disobedience and their sin. Going back to Ezekiel for just a moment, in Ezekiel uh, we find in chapter 7 he referred to this day, this day of Jacob's trouble, even though he doesn't call it that. Nonetheless, he refers to it in Ezekiel 7 verses 5 through 8 where he says, Thus saith the Lord God, an evil, an only evil, behold, is come. An end is come, the end is come, it watches for thee, behold, it is come. I think as a prophet and as a watchman, Ezekiel was, was really crying this out of the people. He says, the morning is come unto thee, O thou that dwellest in the land. The time is come. The day of trouble is near. And not the sounding again of the mountains. Now will I shortly pour out my fury upon thee and accomplish mine anger upon thee, and I will judge thee according to thy ways, and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. Now, you have to understand, he's getting this particular prophecy from the Lord to tell the people that are in captivity already. So the suggestion for us is that this is telling us about a judgment that is yet to come, that is an even greater day of trouble than the one that they've already gone through. But when we get to the time of Jesus and Jesus begins to speak about these issues and speak about these things in Matthew chapter 24, this is what he says and this is how he, he, he fashions what he says so that we will know exactly who, what, where, when, and why. He says in Matthew 24 verse 15, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, you see, it didn't just happen after Daniel and during the time of the Maccabees and during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus is saying this is going to happen again. And it didn't happen just exactly as some people believe it happened just at the time of AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And there's reason to know that in what Jesus says here. He says, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. In other words, listen, you need to understand where this is and when it's going to happen. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. 
Is he talking about El Paso? Is he talking about Washington, D.C.? Is he talking about Rome? He says, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation. Great tribulation. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened. Now listen to what he says. Except those days should be shortened, there should, be, there should no flesh be saved. No flesh. That's an interesting statement when we're dealing with the tribulation period. Unless the Lord shortens those days or keeps it within the time frame that he has set, which would be the seven years of tribulation, man would in, in fact destroy himself completely. The whole world would be destroyed. But if God is part of what is going on in the destruction of, a new, of the new heavens and the new earth, or destructions of the old heaven and old earth and, and the bringing about of the new heavens and the new earth, it may be very well that this is also part of that time frame, which is what the uh, subject of this particular series of studies will be. And so these passages then, the passages that I've just read about the, the, the day of Jacob's, or the time of Jacob's trouble, these passages mark the day when God will enter into judgment with the nation of Israel. Even though the whole world will be affected, he will enter into judgment with the nation of Israel, these days ending simultaneously when the Lord returns with his church to set up his kingdom on earth, which is the millennium. The millennium is, is the thousand-year reign of Christ. That brings us then, with the time remaining that we have, to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The phrase itself, the day of the Lord, appears 25 times in the scriptures, used mostly by the prophets, and four of which can be found in the New Testament. Three are very clear, but there are four mentions of the day of the Lord. There is a companion phrase to the day of the Lord, and it is that phrase I mentioned earlier, in that day. Whenever we read that phrase, usually in prophetic literature, in that day, it is speaking of the day of the Lord, because it appears 115 times, and 43 times it's found in the book of Isaiah alone in that day and seven in the New Testament but the day of the Lord first appears in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12 and I'd like for you to turn there and remember that all of this is just preparatory it's, it's an introduction to where we're going on this, uh, on this little journey about 
you know, the, 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 the bringing about of the new heavens and the new earth. But in verse 12 of Isaiah 2, it says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. In other words, it is a day that is going to bring the arrogance of man down. It is not going to be a happy day on the earth because, first of all, during that time, the church of Jesus Christ will not be on the earth. During that time, there will be tribulation saints who come to the Lord during the, the seven-year period, known as the time of Jacob's trouble, known as the day of the Lord, known as the uh, tribulation period. But it is a day of judgment. The three of the four times that the phrase is used in the New Testament are quite significant in that they speak of the day when everything will be done to humiliate man and to exalt the Lord. For example, consider what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. And he said, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit. And of course, he's, he's quoting from the book of Joel, and we'll get to that in a moment. Not to this particular passage, but to another passage in Joel. But this is where Peter is, is quoting. Now my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out those days in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath. Notice blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as Peter was declaring this to the curious Jewish people that were standing around listening to what was happening in that upper room that day. And Peter came out filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the vision that God had given him and the wisdom in which to preach this message. He talks about that great and notable day of the Lord. But he says to them, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3, uses the phrase in this manner. He says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. So you don't, have to, you don't need me to tell you when this day is. We studied it. We know it. If you, you look at the scriptures, it's there. He says, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Remember that little phrase. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. 
It's, it's, it's a day that's going to be so devastating to people. And Paul is telling them, listen, you know perfectly well about this. It's going to come as a thief in the night. That, but that's how Jesus comes as well for his church. He comes as a thief in the night. But the day of the Lord, that's why we say that, you know, these days are, are, are concurrent. One happens, you know, the rapture of the church, and then all of a sudden, maybe not the exact minute, but soon after, that day of the Lord will begin. And in our text in verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, remember that Paul himself now uses those two same phrases. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So it needs to be understood that the day of the Lord is described as a day of wrath. And it's a day of vengeance as well. And once again, I, I want to encourage you to look at verse 10 as, as we see it there, because just to think that day it will come as a thief, and these things then, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is saying, the heavens shall pass away. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The day of the Lord does not happen at the end of the millennium. It happens before the millennium. So that's something to consider. Consider the time frame. The day of the Lord is a day of great deception. The day of the Lord is a day of great deception. One of the sure signs of the day of the Lord will be the call as we, as we just read in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, and I'll read it again, but the call for peace and safety. That's going to be one of the greatest deceptions in the world at that time. Calling for peace and safety. Whether they're calling for peace and safety, mainly because something happened in the world, a, 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 a dramatic event happened, for example, the rapture of the church, and every believer is taken out, That could call for, you know, peace and safety by people. Things are going to be chaotic to some degree. But notice, they shall say peace and safety, and then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Just as in our day and time, what we're going through today, what we see in the news today, Peace talks will center on the, on the continued turmoil and destructive violence in the Middle East. There's a lot that's been happening in the world, especially in our country and over on the, in the Pacific area with North Korea and China and all of that. And everybody's up in arms about Russia and 
and, you know, the president, his problems and whatnot. All that focus there. But, you know, the, Israel is still a nation seeking to uh, stay alive as a nation. They're seeking to keep their existence every day. There's, there's no uh, intermission for the things that are going on in the Middle East. There are things happening all the time. And the hatred doesn't subside. The hatred of Israel's enemies doesn't subside. Doesn't go away. It only gets worse and worse. You know, it's been said that uh, if Israel wasn't in the Middle East, would there be peace? Think about that question for just a second. If Israel was not in the land today, would there be peace there? No, there wouldn't. History has shown us very clearly that all the tribes and all the nations surrounding Israel that don't want them there, they don't want each other there either. They fight each other as much. They kill each other as much. Why? Because of their hearts. Because they're sinners. And for the most part, because they worship a false god. No peace. I mean, we couldn't get peace drinking Coca-Cola on, on mountaintops in the 60s. We, we couldn't get peace, you know, with, with uh, no matter who was in the White House. We still have an abortion problem. There's still hatred in the land. More hatred now than ever before in our own land. But the Middle East is where it's all happening, really. Right now, there's just all kinds of little diversions, you know, getting us not to look over there. But we have to keep looking. And things are not easy over there for the people. Still going through those times of crisis. And yet they still continue to exist. Why? Because God has his hand up in, upon his people. Cries from the world's inhabitants for assurances that personal safety for families are enforced will be heard constantly. We should consider the covenant for peace that will be imposed upon the people of the state of Israel in the time of one world leader that Daniel proposes for us prophetically in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 where he says 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and that is 70 weeks of years so we're talking about 490 weeks of years 490 years I should say Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. What was begun many, many years ago has not finished. And Daniel describes that time frame. 
He says, he says to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, which is the goal of taking Israel through their chastisement. To bring them into everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. 69 weeks of years. And that being the, the, the proclamation of Ahasuerus uh, during the time of Nehemiah. The building, restoring the building of Jerusalem. Unto the Messiah, the Prince, the street shall be built again, the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Cut off, of course, meaning that the Messiah will be killed, but not for himself. It's for us and his people. And the people of the prince, this prince here is not Jesus. The prince here is speaking of the beast, the Antichrist, whatever designation you want to give him today. Here he's called the prince. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Notice verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant. He's going to make a covenant with the people of Israel. He's going to confirm the covenant with many for one week, which is a period of seven years. It's one-sevenths, one which, which what it says in the Hebrew, which means one seven-year period. That's the last seven-year period of the, of the 490 so he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall, which is in the middle of the week, right in the middle, three and a half years into that seven-year period, he, the prince, the Antichrist, the beast, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. The very reason why they want the temple there today is so that they can retain or they can return to sacrificing in the temple, which they haven't done for thousands of years. But the fact of the matter is, that is not a temple that is really dedicated unto the Lord. And that's the reason why when we were talking about that temple and where it was going to be uh, on the Temple Mount or in the city of David, does it matter at that point? It does matter a little bit, but it, you know, here again, it's it's going to be destroyed again. That's the whole point here. For the overspreading of abominations, you shall make it desolate, even unto the until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured out upon, or shall be poured upon the desolate. So the prince mentioned in verse 26 will bring some semblance of peace to the Middle East and an opportunity for the Jewish people to build a temple and to restore their sacrifices. But that promise, you see, the promise, the, pro the process, and the proposal will be broken, and this prince, Antichrist, will stop the sacrifices of the rebuilt temple and begin a time of terror that is unknown to any and all persons on the planet. 
But it will also be a time of deception from within Israel as well. Because many people are going to look to this guy and say, you know, we need to follow him and we need, we need to stick with him here. Because this is our sure sign and our sure sense and our sure time for peace. And I have to say that most of that is going to come from religious leaders, not civil leaders, religious leaders. I'll tell you why. First of all, it was a lesson that wasn't learned. It was a lesson that wasn't learned. It hasn't been learned. Because if you take the prophecies that point to the end times, listen to what we hear in Isaiah 9 verse 16. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Now you can put that into the context when you read the whole of chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 6 verses 13 and 14. I'm just doing this for time. But Jeremiah 6, 13 and 14, it says, For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone deals falsely. Notice, from the prophet to the priest. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They bought into a peace agreement that eventually leads to no peace whatsoever. And the prophets dealing with the issues of the captivities, both in Assyria and in Babylon during the times of the prophets, all of them were saying, listen, there are false prophets among you that are saying, you know what, let's just have peace. We can, you know, we can go home earlier. And God says, no, you're going to have to go through the whole, the whole extent of your, of your chastisement. So they were preaching falsely. Peace, when there was no peace. And even Ezekiel, Ezekiel 13, verse 10. Because even because they have seduced my people, saying peace, and there was no peace. And one built up a wall, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. Uh, verse 16. To wit, the prophets of Israel, which prophesy concerning Jerusalem, and which see visions of peace for her, and there is no peace, saith the Lord. So that coming from those who are supposed to be the, the religious leaders, the one leading the people to God. But they made a God of, and they will make a God of this prince. And then he's going to pull the rug right out from under them, three and a half years into this peace covenant. A day of great deception. And it is a day of great darkness. The day of the Lord is a day of great darkness. We are still living in a time of, of God's light. And while the world is getting worse and people are becoming more bold to, to do their, their evil biddings in the daylight, the day of the Lord is going to be a complete darkness. Not physically so much, but especially spiritually. Joel chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. 
Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, nigh is near. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behold, I'm sorry, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. Now, primarily, this was a, a description of the armies of, of Assyria coming down into the northern kingdom of, of Israel. But this is an even greater description of whatever is going to come into Israel and destroy. Once again, as we read earlier, the city of Jerusalem and the people. As a day of, that, that, that is what's going to happen. That is what is going to lead to this battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period, not the end of the millennium. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that because there is a reference to the end of the millennium that mentions Gog and Magog again. But again, that is, that is different than, than the, the, the real uh, players in, in, in Ezekiel 30 and 39, which we studied already and, and, and saw that. But we'll, we'll come back to, to look at that. Amos chapter 5 verses 18 through 20. Again, speaking about the day of the Lord and its darkness, it says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him, shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? even very dark and no brightness in it. It, it. It's speaking of a spiritual darkness, but how great can that spiritual darkness be that you cannot see anything in the sense of what is dangerous or not? In other words, there is no spiritual light during the day of the Lord except where God wants that light to be. Even the tribulation saints themselves. Even the, the, the two witnesses at, at, at the temple. They're going to be hated and they're going to be executed. But of course we know that in three and a half days the, the, the two witnesses arise and, and then ascend into heaven. And the tribulation saints will be found, of course, crying out to the Lord because they, they will be taken out because of their of their stand for, for the Lord and for Yeshua, for Jesus. But it's a day of darkness. And while these particular passages speak of the warning given to Israel of the invasion, as I said, of the Assyrians, the full and final representation of this tragic time would not come until the day of the Lord, when God's judgment will fall on the whole world. The darkness foretold by Joel and Amos is already beginning to close in. There are storm clouds gathering in our age. And our generation needs to hear these prophecies as the time for their fulfillment draws near. 
We have only scratched the surface tonight of the, the surface of the devastation that is yet to take place that would bring about new heavens and a new earth, but we're nearly there. We're nearly there. In our next study, we're going to get to this point of, of, of the supplement, which is what takes place before the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're going to deal with the last three or four chapters of the book of Revelation. Tie them into what we've learned today about the days that, that matter to us. This is why I wanted to talk about these days. The, uh, the day of grace. The day of salvation. The day of, the, of Christ. The day of the Lord. The time of Jacob's trouble. All of these are important for us to know because God has planned them that way. So there is a, there is a chronogra uh, chronography, if, if, if you will. I should say chronology. I'm sorry, chronology. I'm thinking of watches. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> chronography. Chronology. There's a chronology here. God is, God is intent on making sure that we understand what that, those time frames are. Now, one thing that I have to warn you about is when we get to the book of Revelation, that oftentimes things are not in chronological order, as we'll see in chapters 20 and 21. But we'll talk about that next time. I'm just kind of whetting your appetite, I hope. I hope you have an appetite for this. Okay. So we're going to get to this point then and what takes place before the millennial kingdom of Christ. But until then, let's look for the day of Christ. <laughs>